Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be Dr. Angela Lanfranchi, a recently retired breast cancer surgeon and someone who runs something called the Breast Cancer Prevention Institute. But before we get to her, let's spend a few minutes and go over some uh, basic information on breast, breast tissue, hormonal changes with pregnancy, uh, and the like. Okay, so what is the teleological purpose of (laughs) the breast? I guess that was redundant. But, you know, why... Why do women have breasts, Chris? You know, you say that, and I think of a mentor that I had when I was in medical school who was this very large, uh, flamboyant woman, and she used to say to the medical students, God didn't put those on there for decoration. (laughs) He put them on there for? uh, For milk, to feed (laughs) our young. Yes. Uh, And that is the purpose of breast. And it's really, it's pretty fascinating that the, the process of growth and development of the mammary glands, or the breast, and the preparation for eventual milk production, which is what it turns out uh, breasts are for, it's a very complicated thing. And that starts with puberty, when estrogen level goes up. Now, with our guests, we're going to talk a lot about hormones, and so it's worth thinking about that a little bit. But at the onset of puberty, estrogen levels start rising in a young girl, and the breast tissue begins to develop. So was there already something there waiting for the estrogen to stimulate it? Yes. Breast tissue is a combination of fatty tissue, regular old fat, Hmm. like is anywhere else in your body, and glandular breast tissue. And the ratio of those to each other changes through time and with pregnancy uh, and hormones. But as soon as the estrogen levels begin to go up at puberty, everything starts to change and the glandular tissue starts to develop, get much larger uh, and grow. And as a reaction to the increasing levels of estrogen, progesterone, and prolactin during pregnancy, the tissue increases its fat content and size as well. So did both estrogen and progesterone increase the size of the breast tissue? Yeah, they all play an important part, which I think is going to come up a lot with some of the research our guest is on. But prolactin, progesterone, and estrogen are all important in the breast development and function. So if you're not, uh, if a woman's not pregnant, what are the effects on the size of the breast tissue? And, and where, where does the estrogen come from that forms the breast? Yeah, estrogen comes mainly from developing follicles inside the ovary. A follicle is a cyst that has an egg in it. Okay. And as the follicle grows, it makes estrogen. Now, the tricky part is men have estrogen as well mm-hmm. because estrogen is made in other areas outside of the ovary, right. namely the fatty tissues. There's some, as we say, peripheral conversion of the pre-hormones to estrogen to estrogen. So estrogen's made in a lot of different areas. So is that why men who are overweight are more likely to have what we call gynecomastia or or pseudo-breast tissue. I don't know what you call it. It's actual breast tissue. Actual and breast tissue. as I'm sure our guest will talk about, men get breast cancer. Yes. Uh, there is some glandular tissue uh, in males, very, very uh, slight compared to what's in females. But with uh, hormonal stimulation, it can actually become uh, reactive and actually develop into Is it true that for about every 100 women with breast cancer, there's a man with breast cancer? Uh, about 1%, I yes. think. We'll, we'll see when we talk with, uh, with our guests more. Interesting, some crazy stuff happens in pregnancy on the way to, the term is called lactogenesis. But any pregnant woman or any woman who's been pregnant listening to us is shaking her head right now. But estrogen excretion goes from 20 milligrams a day to 20,000 milligrams a day during pregnancy. That's a big increase. Uh, And so the breast tissue begins to grow like crazy, as any pregnant woman will tell you. And it requires increasing levels of prolactin that allow the estrogen to exert its effect. And then interestingly, as soon as the baby's born, the opposite happens. You see a dramatic fall in estrogen and progesterone levels. And that's the process that allows the breast milk to actually be produced uh, and released. It's fascinating stuff. Let's talk about a little bit more about breast cancer. Yes. Um, I mean, we have a whole month and purple uh, <laughs> colored football players, I don't, or pink colored. Pink. I don't know if they're still doing that anymore <laughs> in October. I haven't been watching as much football. but So it's obviously culturally important. Yeah, breast cancer is breast a big deal. I mean, it's the most common occurring 
cancer in women, including skin cancer. But you as a dermatologist know skin cancers don't really count. No, except to the patients who have them. On their nose, <laughs> yes. But breast cancer is the most common occurring cancer. It is not the most common cancer killer. Want to take a shot at that one? Uh, lung cancer? Colon cancer. Colon. I was yeah. second But guess. lung is running up close because of tobacco use among women being so prevalent. The second most common cause of cancer death in women, that is women who are Caucasian, of African descent or Asian descent, is breast cancer. So the second most common cancer death, colon being the first, but breast cancer is the most common cancer that's occurring. Okay. Yeah. It also appears, and I think our guest may talk about this, that premenopausal breast cancer and postmenopausal breast cancer are really two different diseases altogether. Mm-hmm. The postmenopausal variety being much more lethal and serious. So the oh, earlier me, you get it. I said that upside down. The the premenopausal. So the, the younger, younger you are when you get breast cancer, usually the more dangerous. It is more likely to be a very vigorous, aggressive cancer than the seventy five or eighty year old who gets breast cancer. Interesting. A couple of uh, interesting things about pregnancy and breast cancer, though. Women who have their first child before the age of 35, there's a protective effect against breast cancer, which is really pretty interesting. I think that's going to come up in some of our discussion about pregnancy termination and breast cancer. Yes. The younger you are, you as a woman that have your first child, the greater the breast cancer protection effect is. And interestingly, to be specific, women who have their first child after the age of 35 are 40% more likely to get breast cancer compared to the woman that has her first child before the age of 20. So if you want to protect yourself from breast cancer, (laughs) you need to have your first child at 19 and have them over and over and over and over. And please be married. (laughs) Yes. Get married at 18, have your first child at 19, uh, and do that over and over and over. But it's a fascinating topic. I mean, everyone for the most part, knows someone who either has or knows someone who knows someone who's had breast cancer. Oh, my It's very prevalent. It is so common. And there's so many campaigns and programs about breast cancer awareness. Uh, It can be overwhelming. And uh, one of the interesting things is the disagreement among the experts about breast cancer screening. We've talked about this yes. on some of the episodes, but the if we look at American Cancer Society, the American College of OBGYN, the American College of Radiologists, the American Academy of Family Physicians, they all disagree on breast cancer screening. Because that- breast is not really the um, uh, the province of any one specific group of physicians, is it? And it's one of those cases where more is just not necessarily better. There's a couple of age groups that we talk about with breast cancer screening. It's women 40 to 49, and then 50 to 74, and then 75 and older. So 40, 49, 50, 74, 75. Are there any patterns between these different groups' recommendations? Well, it's it's a question of is it one-year or two-year screenings. Okay. Um, and 40 to 49 is controversial. By that, I mean, as you know, in medicine, when we say controversial, it's a polite way to say experts disagree, isn't it? Right. Um, not a lot of great support for every year for the 40 to 49 group. Pretty general support for about every two years for a mammogram in that age okay. group. 50 to 74, a lot more agreement among the experts on every year. Okay. It's not quite uniform. And then 75 and older, a fair amount of agreement that mammography becomes much less valuable. And the risk go up. And I find when I'm talking to patients about risks of mammograms, they think I mean a radiation-induced cancer. That's not what we mean when we say risk at all. We mean the risk of me and you and other doctors doing things based off a false positive mammogram. And the younger you are and the more dense the breast tissue, and younger breast tissue tends to be more dense, sure. the more likely you are to get a false reading, have someone rush in and do a biopsy, maybe get a complication from the biopsy, all for a, a test that maybe shouldn't have been done. So that's the risk of doing a screening test more often than it really ought to be done. Right. You find an answer that says there's cancer there, and there really isn't. That's the false positive. But it's complicated. And to try to tell a woman, you don't need a mammogram, uh, after all of the commercials and advertisements, it's very difficult to do. It's much easier to just yield and order the mammogram. But those of us who are trying to do the right thing for our patients, we try to educate and inform where there's clarity and then where there's lack of clarity. How, How do your patients take that advice from you? 
I, I think it's difficult. Uh, you know, if my mother's listening, she would appreciate this. But, you know, when, <laughs> when she passed 75, I said, Mom, no more mammograms. And she said, well, why not? I don't want to die of breast cancer. And I said, in all likelihood, should you acquire breast cancer at 75, you'll die with it and not of it. It's like men and prostate cancer. It is. But to the 75-year-old mother, that sounds a bit fatalistic, I realize. So good policy and good statistics are not always good bedside manner. Wonderful, practical information. We're going to really dive deep with uh, Dr. Lanfranchi. But first, our patented medical trivia question of the day. Let's go back 300, 400 years to the 17th century. In the 17th century, breast cancer was known as a disease of which of these five groups? A, grandmothers, B, wet nurses, C, nuns, D, school teachers, or E, widows? You're going to have to wait till the end of the show for the answer to the question. But after this break... We'll be back with Dr. Angela Lanfranchi here on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And welcome back. We're here after the break with our special guest, Dr. Angela Lanfranchi. She's a retired, recently retired breast cancer surgeon who practiced in New Jersey from 1984 until 2017. She got her MD at the Georgetown School of Medicine, and she was surgical co-director of the Sanofi Breast Cancer Center at Steeplechase Cancer Center in Somerville, New Jersey, for 10 years. She is now the president of the Breast Cancer Prevention Institute. That's www.bcpinstitute.org. Its mission is to educate lay and professional communities in risk reduction and prevention of breast cancer through research, publications, and lectures. She's the author of numerous articles concerning abortion and hormonal contraceptives as breast cancer risks. And over the last 20 years, she's traveled all over the world, speaking in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Europe, China, Korea, India, and South Africa, in medical schools, hospitals, universities, and other organizations. And she's even been allowed to speak at the United Nations about breast cancer risks. And, and now, Tom, she gets to say, and I've also been on Dr. Oh, Doctor. I'm sure she's going to add yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Angela. Yeah. Angela, is there a conspiracy of silence regarding some of the main contributing factors to breast cancer? Well, I I don't really look at it as a conspiracy because then you have to attribute motivations. But and and I think it's multifactorial, you know, why they don't choose to talk about it. One reason is the, the there was a really prominent researcher named Nancy Davidson who wrote an article with Jaeger called estrogen and carcinogenesis in the New England Journal. And so they they went over, you know, what I write in my pamphlets, and um, she got, like, so many hate mails, to letters to the editor, saying, how could you possibly say that, that, you know, you, you came out in this journal not that long ago, and, you know, with the Marchbank studies, and you know, you said it wasn't true, and and then she wrote, you know, how they respond to letters to the editor. Yes. She wrote back, yes, I changed my mind. <laughs> Ooh. And, and, how, how long and, ago was this, yeah. Angela? I'm think. do you know how when you age, like, time gets compressed? <laughs> yes, yes, it does. I, I, <laughs> so... I think it was around 2004, but that, okay. so that was kind of a uh, that was kind of a breakthrough. And then I I spoke I was reading an article on estrogen metabolism, which is was I thought it was really interesting. And you know how it's like this multi uh, ring carbon structure. Yes. And if you metabolize estrogen at the fourth carbon, you hydroxylate it, you end up with a direct carcinogen. You end up with catecholestrogen quinone, which pulls purine bases out of DNA chains. Those are the run, rungs of the ladder. So it's carcinogenic. And uh, she talked about, you know, if you metabolize it, the second uh, carbon and then the fourth. And, and um, I called her up. I said, geez, that was really interesting. You know, we should be looking. And she says, well, I can't get funding. Mm. And and 
you know, so a lot of these these researchers, if they say anything bad about estrogen or say anything bad about the pill or whatever, they they lose their funding. So that there's a lot of there's you know governmental pressure on them and. Yeah, you know, it's interesting on some work that I've done with contraception as as a board of patients. I've seen reports that say it's about a $30 billion a year industry market, I should say, artificial contraceptions, yes. which many of them are estrogen-based. But, you know, $30 billion will sort of motivate a lot of people to either be quiet or speak up, uh, depending on one's perspective. Well, you know, you know how um, you have the International Agency on Research of Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization. Yes. So they have five groups of uh, carcinogens, like five is maybe there's a case report, three is, well, now we have experimental evidence. But when you get up to one, there's no doubt about it. So they came out in 2005 and said estrogen, progestin, combination drugs were group one carcinogens, mm. the same groups as asbestos. Or, or and tobacco. And, and, and yes, and tobacco and lung cancer. So there was no doubt. And and it was published in Lancet Oncology, uh, you know, the meeting that they had that resulted in that. Well, the next issue of Lancet were all these people that were really mad that they came to that conclusion. <laughs> and I was always wondering, how did they ever pull that off because of all the pressure? You know what they did? They said anybody that got any money to do research search on hormones was not allowed to vote. Oh. And that's how they did it. Oh, on the, kind of, you mean getting the study in there? Yeah. It, getting the vote from the members yes. of that group. Mm. So, uh, I mean, there there is a lot of politics, but that that's that's nothing new. That's so, Angela, I'd like you to respond to something that is supposedly non-biased, and this is a group called the Institute of Medicine. It's a nonprofit health arm of the National Academy of Sciences, and in 2012, they reviewed possible causes of breast cancer and found that no product or chemical could be conclusively linked to the malignancy. Is that true no. from what you've seen? No. Now, why would you ever say that they are non-biased? <laughs> <laughs> I said supposedly. I, I mean, well, no. I mean, you have to, you know, it sounds impressive, the Institutes of Medicine. Well, they're not the Institutes of Medicine anymore because they became even more incredible because now they're the National Academy of Medicine. Basically, if you have a national organization a corporation that started in the District of Columbia. Because mm -hmm. the district is an estate, you had to get a charter from Congress. And, and the charter is basically your corporate rules. So the Girl Scouts of America, the Red Cross, they all have these charters. Okay. And that's basically, and, and, and of course, it's, it's like you want to be as prestigious as you can be, so you invite Nobel laureates and all of those things to to become members of your national academy, but there are nurses in that national academy. There's, you know, it's like I'm going to say say something about researchers in general because all these people do research, right? In in Nature magazine, which is a reputable journal, in 2005 they published a study by Martinson et al where they gave 10 questions to anybody who had gotten money from the NIH to do research. Okay. And one of the questions was, did you ever change the results, um, mm. the methodology of a study based on pressure from a funding source? Ooh. That was the only statistically significant answer, and 15% of them said yes. Oh my! And I but now, wonder how many didn't this. say yes who who did. Oh my God! Like even if they gave me, it was an anonymous questionnaire. So even if they gave me the anonymous questionnaire, I would think that they had it barcoded some way. 
and I don't think I would have admitted to to doing that. Well, conti- it, Angela, it, it, continuing along that theme with the Institutes of Medicine or the IOM, uh, they've also said that induced abortion is very safe, and the only physical or <laughs> mental sequelae or side effects could be preterm birth. Right. That's sort of hard to read right. and keep a straight face, even on the radio. It, it, it is very. So the reason that they had to come out with the preterm birth was that there's two really large meta-analyses that show that the more abortions you have, the higher your risk of preterm birth. And mm-hmm. you, you have to think about it. Like, when you, you know, when you go into labor, how long does it take you? It takes you hours and hours and hours. Because you've got this little tiny uh, muscle the size of your thumb holding in nine pounds worth of fluid and baby. Yeah. And it is so, so can you imagine? I mean, it takes you a long time to get it thin enough and big enough to get a head out. Right. Well, if you're doing abortions and you're or you're instrumenting the cervix in any way, you can damage it. I mean, it doesn't. Have, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. So, oh, well yes, said. they they kind of had to do that because you know the very preterm births had really been increasing. So, so they they admitted that, but they didn't admit all the mental health problems. I mean, Priscilla Coleman has done an enormous amount of research on that. She published a meta-analysis that showed 10% of the women going to psychiatrists in Britain were doing it as a result of abortion. And with and and it was so amazing. They you know, when they got to the part of the uh, abortion breast cancer link, like what they did was they said okay, we're going to be really strict about this. Uh, we're only going to take studies done after 2000. Well, that eliminated so many statistically significant studies hmm. uh, up to 2000. And we, we can't have them from places like China. They can only be from uh, the U.S. or Europe, because who knows how they do abortions. Really, like, it matters wow. if you do a good abortion or a bad abortion, <laughs> what it's going to do to the mother's breast. So they relied upon three studies. The only American study that they used was one from Seattle, using the same database that Janet Daly used in 1994, where she showed there was an overall 50% increased risk of breast cancer in women under 40 with abortion. And that was published in the National Cancer Institute's journal. They used that same database and they said, oh, no, you know, we don't find a link. But they only had 138 cases of cancer. They um, didn't say when the abortion was done. So if the abortion was done, you know, on this date and two days later, and you didn't have like a follow-up of at least eight to ten years, because if you're unlucky... So Angela, can you summarize for our listeners, what is the data on the relationship between abortion and breast cancer? Okay, right uh, on, on our website, what I've done was, I I listed all the studies done from um, uh, 1957 up until uh, April of 2018. Since then, there's been one more study. And I I make make it so they separate induced from spontaneous abortions. Because spontaneous abortion is also known as miscarriage. Right. So 90% of abortions... Uh, spontaneous abortions or miscarriages occur in the first trimester. And those are usually hormonally abnormal. So a lot of times people will miscarry and they'll say things like, oh, I didn't even know I was pregnant. Well, you didn't know you were pregnant because your breast didn't hurt you or you weren't nauseous. You know, your period came late and it was really heavy and your doctor said that, you know, you had a miscarriage. So there, you don't get the same level of hormones stimulating your breast tissue. Got it. Where now, except for the the problem is uh, spontaneous abortions in the second trimester, 
they actually do increase risk. Okay. So if the cord wraps around the neck or you get fetal demise or something and it's hormonally normal pregnancy, you will get an increased risk. Hmm. But it's important that you separate the two because if you put them all to, if you lump them together, you know, your results for induced won't be as high, right? Got it. Spontaneous doesn't. So uh, I think I have listed since 1957 uh, 60 studies, and of those, uh, uh, 57 showed a positive correlation. And of those, um, 37 were statistically significant, showing a link between abortion and breast cancer. But I'm of the opinion, like Disraeli, uh, about lies. You know, there are three kinds of lies. Mm -hmm. Lies, damnable lies, and statistics. Because now you have programs where you can play with the variables that you're studying and pick out a subset of patients and get pretty much any result you want. But the biology, you can't change. Explain what you mean by that. Okay. So as soon as you get, you conceive, even before that, that embryo implant or the blastocyst implants, when that zygote is starting to float down the fallopian tube, you get HCG secreted. And HCG stimulates the mother's ovaries to produce a lot of estrogen and progesterone, and that starts their breast growing. And then after implantation, the fetal placental unit takes over. That's why a lot of miscarriages are occurring by 11 weeks. So by the, it's, most women think that, you know, you're pregnant nine months, but full-term pregnancy is 40 weeks, which in my mind is 10 months, which is one of the first lies that OBGYNs tell their patients. <laughs> I just say. Present, present <laughs> company excluded, of course. <laughs> Old primate who figured that out. I'm only teasing. But anyway, so for the first half of pregnancy, your breasts double in volume. Mm. And what are you what are you making more of? You're making more of the type one and two lobules, which are immature, where the ductal and lobular cancers form. So by twenty weeks your HCG is really fallen. But what starts creeping up? It's HPL, human placental lactogen. And if you look at graphs, at around 32 weeks, that level starts to level out. So it, it goes up, to th- at, up until 32 weeks, and then it levels off. The difference between giving birth at 32 weeks versus 33 is you double your risk. So if you if you um, give birth at 33 weeks, you would have gotten another 11% in reduction of risk if you had gone to 40 weeks. But if you give birth at 32 weeks, you've or less than 32 weeks, you've doubled your risk. risk That's of, why any risk of breast cancer. Birth before, yes, because you've got all of these immature lobules that are cancer susceptible and they don't get to get those epigenetic changes that change them into the milk-producing, terminally differentiated, cancer-resistant cells. Now, I'm going to give you one illustration of how important that is. If you haven't had a kid or a pregnancy that's lasted at least 32 weeks, and you smoke cigarettes, the benzopyrenes in the cigarette smoke is a carcinogen. And if you smoke and you have that immature breast tissue, your risk of breast cancer goes up 600%. Wow. But if that same woman smokes cigarettes and she's been through a full-term pregnancy, her risk from smoking only goes up 69%. Wow. Because 85% of her breast tissue has been terminally differentiated. Okay. So, the early, so you want to close out that susceptibility window. So it used to be 
that you didn't get your you didn't go through menarche your first period until you were 16, 17 years old in the old days. And then soon after that, you got married and you started having kids. So you had very you had a very short susceptibility window. So in the Middle Ages, the only people getting breast cancer were the nuns because they were largely childless. But everybody else is Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> getting, right? Getting yes. married as teenagers and having kids right away, and and so okay. that has been. So, That's Angela, you're saying early in pregnancy, they're making more immature breast tissue, which is highly susceptible to cancer. But once you get past this 32 to 33 weeks, it becomes mature breast tissue, much less likely right. to get cancer. So my question is, what if a woman has an abortion and she's got all this immature breast tissue and then she becomes pregnant and has a full-term pregnancy? Does this overcome the, quote, damage that was done with the yeah. abortion? Now, this is very interesting. In that same Janet Daling study that showed that 50% increased uh, risk yes. overall, if the woman got pregnant and lactated within 10 years, her risk only went up 10%. Mm. And on that note, we're going to take a break. So, That's a great point, okay. Angela. We'll have more to talk about here on Dr. Doctor. We're back on Dr. Doctor with Dr. Angela Lanfranchi, a breast cancer surgeon, recently retired, who still runs the Breast Cancer Prevention Institute. I saw Angela in September at our National Catholic Medical Association conference. She handed me a 97-page monograph that she and some others put together for the Food and Drug Administration, asking for more transparency and patient warnings regarding multiple forms, not just oral, of hormonal contraceptives. You're one of the 10 petitioners. Six of you are physicians. In it, you recommend adding black box warnings to hormonal contraceptives for many reasons, including an increased risk of breast cancer. Would you explain to your listeners why you did this and what you've heard back so far from the FDA? Well, I, I want to say that William Williams, who used to be the editor of the Lenaker Quarterly, He's the one that had this idea because he knew people at the FDA and he knew this whole idea about how you, how any public interest group or any group of people could directly petition the FDA about some issue that they had with drugs. And are, do they and have so, to respond by law and look at your yes, data? Yes, it's perfect. Great. I, I mean... Initially, I thought that it wasn't such a good idea because, I mean, the the F, why would the FDA respond? And right. you know, it's going you know all the data was already there, but I didn't realize that it's it's an actual it's a form that you have to fill out with all the data you by law have to put in all the studies that don't support what you're saying as well as the things that do you have to give the economic impact of them you have to specify all of the studies and so it's an amazing process that he assembled all these people myself included to do and um, so black bo we asked for black box warnings for some of them. The first one was the fact that it inc uh, that Depo-Provera increased the risk of HIV transmission, and we all know that that is like a bad thing since there's really no cure for that. So basically, a black box warning is something that has a huge impact that might you know be life threatening. But we also asked for black box warning, uh, they call them black boxes because that little insert that nobody reads that comes with all medications, <laughs> they, actually, they actually put a black border around it, you know, to call yes. your attention to it. And I was doing some reading about it. What's interesting is black box warnings don't necessarily change behavior. It depends on how the doctors feel about the drug and how much publicity wow. they get. But anyway, so it definitely increases the risk of breast cancer because not only did the World Health Organization show through all its studies that it did, if estrogen in and of itself 
can be a direct carcinogen, like I talked about yes. before, in terms of how it was metabolized. And it, it also increases the risk of cervical cancer, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, systemic lupus, depression. And so those were the things we asked for black box warnings on. And then the other things that they should um, uh, talk about is the fact that it can give, give you, uh, increase your risk of multiple sclerosis, interstitial cystitis, osteoporotic bone fractures. I have a friend that was in the pharmaceutical industry in the uh, company that developed Depo-Provera, and there was internal memos saying, well, if you're going to put out this drug, you better not give it to teenagers because they have to lay down their bone for the rest of their life. Wow. So don't market it to them. But they did anyway. So it's especially good for those frisky teenagers that you don't think are going to take the pill that you want to. <laughs> Um, give them a shot and then just have to recapture them three months later. That's that's what Planned Parenthood does. But anyway, uh, it also it increases uh, you, your risk of, of losing lean body mass and increasing fat. And uh, the one of the biggest things is it increases your risk of uh, thromboembolism. Like, so it increases your risk of DVT, estrogen, and it's it's a so estrogen. Angela. How do these increase what? breast cancer? Okay, so es estrogen and okay. If you go into the um, regular menstrual cycle, when you're in the follicular phase where the the ovary is only putting out estrogen because you haven't ovulated yet, the breast is doing nothing. You don't see any mitoses. You don't see any proliferations. However, in the uterus, your uterus lining is proliferating. That's why estrogen only will increase uh, uterine endometrial cancer. Okay. Once you release that egg and you make the corpus luteum, which then makes the progesterone, when you're in this phase where there's estrogen and progesterone together, like in most combination drugs, what you're doing is you see all these mitoses in the cells of the breast. So mitoses are cells dividing. They're active for our listeners. Right. right. And when, every time a cell divides, you have to copy the DNA, which is just like a... Uh, it's yes. like copying the Bible really fast. <laughs> and so it's easy it's easy to make a mistake. And so when those mutations build up, the faster you you copy, the more likely you are to make a mistake. Type one lobules that were ductal cancers form copy their DNA much more quickly than the 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 type three and four lobules that you get you know after that 32 weeks of pregnancy because there's more estrogen progesterone receptors so it's because of that proliferation and the second reason is that there are metabolites of estrogen that are direct carcinogens which i referenced before the catapult yes. estrogen quinone and that has been proven to be clinically important because there was a study done in 2003 where they actually measured the levels of catechol estrogen quinone in women with cancer and without. And the women with cancer had higher levels of that. So, Angela, I'm just so, a dumb dermatologist here. I don't deal with these hormones. It sounds to me, I'm missing something, but what is it? In the normal menstrual cycle, you've got estrogen and then progesterone. Uh, influencing the breast. You also have those same chemicals in these birth control pills. What's different that one is harmful and the other isn't? It is. It isn't. Because the more menstrual cycles you have in your lifetime, the higher your risk for breast cancer. So early menarche, you get your period, you're nine years old, late menopause. You know, instead of having menopause at the average age of 53, you, you still have menstrual cycles at 55, 58. You have a lot of menstrual cycles in your lifetime, the higher your risk. 
Which would explain probably the so, protective effect so, of pregnancy, wouldn't it? Without the protective effect of pregnancy, it's yeah. worse. Yeah, sure. But so if you want to think of breast cancer risks, other than the 6 or 9% that are from an inherited bad gene, it's how much estrogen you're exposed to in your lifetime and how soon do you differentiate your breast tissue through a full-term pregnancy or one that goes beyond 32 weeks. Mm. Okay, so those, that makes sense. So my question yeah. is, is the dosage of these birth control pills or systemic hormones higher than the estrogen levels that a woman's putting out during a normal menstrual cycle? They have to be higher okay. because the pill suppresses ovulation, and they do that by making your body think you're pregnant. And so when you're young and you've got your ovaries functioning and you've got very high levels of estrogen and progesterone anyway, you need a lot of estrogen and progesterone in your birth control pills as opposed to hormone replacement therapy where your ovaries aren't producing a lot. So you don't need very much. So does estrogen replacement therapy increase breast cancer risk? Yes. How much compared to birth control pills? Less? Okay. In in 2002, the Women's Health Initiative study had to be stopped because they found that women on the pill had a 26% increased risk of breast cancer. And so you want to say, oh, that's not very high. And it's not. But at that point in time, there were 67 million women taking them. When they heard about that study on the 6 o'clock news, half of them stopped their script. Wow. And, And within five years, 2007, the incidence of postmenopausal breast cancer went down 11%. So you could knock off about 116,000 cases of premenopausal breast cancer a year if you got everybody to knock off birth control. So you meant 11% of premenopausal women, not postmenopausal. No, no. Uh, postmenopausal. Okay. Because they stopped their hormone replacement therapy. Oh, replacement the- therapy, not birth control pills. Got it. Right. My bad. But but birth control pills are the same drugs, but in more potent forms and higher doses. How much higher? Is it multiple times higher? It's it's um, different potencies. It's not like it's. It's different chemicals that are stronger. It have more. Put it this way: they have more of an effect. You know, Angela, it's it's interesting as an OBGYN if I. If I say to a woman, a postmenopausal woman, here, I think you should think about hormone replacement therapy, reflexively she'll say, I don't want that. It causes cancer. But she wouldn't say that about maybe her daughter or granddaughter taking birth control pills. Isn't it funny how Mm, culturally we've we've done such a great job of convincing postmenopausal women, estrogen dangerous, but yet, you know, I guess cynically because of the advertising, 25-year-olds, they don't think about breast cancer when they're taking even more. Because it's become a rite of passage, mm. the pill. Yeah. And the parents say, oh, I took my daughter to the doctor and she has really bad dysmenorrhea. You know, oh, I'll put her on a pill. But they're secretly happy that she, if she slips up, she's not going to get pregnant. Right. And, and the daughter is happy because now she knows when her period is going to come. It's not going to hurt. It's very light. And it stimulates her to grow more breast tissue. That's one of the effects. So the, the girls like it. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing I, cultural phenomenon that, you know, we worry about hormones in the chicken we eat, but not hormones in the birth control pills that we take. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a frightening it's, time. It's so, crazy. so if it, it would appear as though we could say there's a, the link between abortion and breast cancer. There's a link between artificial contraception, estrogen-based, and breast cancer. What are, What are the other big takeaways that that you've that you've encountered and that you work with on a regular basis? 
Well, it's actually all of the birth control pills. I mean, even the progestin-only birth control pills, the mini pills. One of the biggest lies about the pill, I think, is that women think they're 100% effective. Uh. (laughs) But if you go to the CDC, they say, well, if you're perfect taking the pill, they're 99. But as most people take them, it's 92%, which means 8 out of... Yes, eight out of a hundred women on the pill in any one year, taking as directed, will get pregnant right. on the pill. Right. And with the mini pill, it's even worse. It's thirteen out of a hundred because with the mini pill, you ovulate about sixty percent of the time. And if yeah. you think you're, and with the mini pill, if you're on antibiotics, they're ineffective. You know, it's interesting, we've encountered and talked a lot about how, you know, to be anti-contraception, we're labeled anti-woman. But you would think intuitively, if we're talking about breast cancer, and I'm trying to prevent it, there's no way I could be labeled anti-woman, right? I mean, that should be a universally acceptable motivation. But yet, the estrogen, the love affair with estrogen is so high that we can't even get the message that... You know, forget contraception. If you take these products, you have a higher chance of getting breast cancer. You would think that would be an easy sell, but it's as difficult, if not more so, isn't it? No, because, you know, I when I ran the breast program, we would have a risk and assessment um, paper we had to go through. And I always pointed out, 10 years before they started their estrogen replacement therapy, you know, it, it was so evident. People said, well, if I don't have the pill, what do I, what do, What would happen? Because they think that it's the only way to control fertility. Sure. And it's, and it's not. And the message of natural family planning, where you empower women to know the 100 hours a month that you're fertile and can Well, Angela, we'd have to say a resounding amen there. You are definitely preaching to the choir. We're going to have to leave it for another day. We can't thank you enough, Dr. Angela Lanfranchi, for joining us on Dr. Doctor, here from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Well, you're back with Dr. Doctor, here from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and it's time to get back to our trivial question. And to remind you, in the 17th century... That's some time ago. Breast <laughs> cancer was known as the disease of, and it's a multiple choice format. Tom. And if you were listening closely, our she guest gave, it away. gave the answer. So many of you should be getting this right. So was it known as a disease of grandmothers, wet nurses, nuns, school teachers, or widows? Dun, dun. Nuns. nuns. The disease of nuns. Because and, they had none of the... <laughs> times when they get pregnant and make uh, and protect, make milk. Yeah, the protective effect of lactation, making milk, and the protective effect of pregnancy. And she did a brilliant job of explaining that, yes. even if she did give away our yes, no, question. But, but that way, more, more people are going to remember the answer now. And it all comes down to how much estrogen is a breast exposed to during life. And this idea, I think she did a great job of explaining um, the connection between estrogen of pregnancy and abortion and breast cancer. Yes. Uh, and that in early pregnancy, the breasts are turned on and they begin developing and doing things. And then that's suddenly stopped before it finishes. Yes. Uh, and that leaves that tissue susceptible uh, to breast cancer down the road. That's a great description. It's very physiologic. It makes perfect sense. I don't see how anybody could disagree with a- and that. And it's Beautiful how she explained that even a woman who's had an abortion, if she has a full-term pregnancy, the breasts make milk, it reduces her risk of breast cancer down to 10%, up from many times that increased rate. Yeah, it is remarkable. I think uh, maybe the the somewhat sad yet cynical uh, component was this idea that good discussion and good dialogue around estrogen and breast cancer gets shut down at institutional and political levels. Uh, you would think in science there'd be no place for that, but that's you not the think, case. But it's it's not true. So uh, hopefully you learned a lot from Dr. Lalanne Franchi, and you can get onto her website, 
which is BCP. It's like birth control pill, but it stands for Breast Cancer Prevention Institute.org. 501c3 nonprofit corporation. She's going to put that FDA petition up for all to see and update. She did get a letter October 31st uh, stating that they have received it. The FDA is reviewing the data. They said there's a ton of data there, but by law, as she said, they have to respond and have a good answer. So just like on the back of cigarette packages where there's a warning (laughs) that says this may cause cancer, we could someday see that same warning on birth control pills. Will it have a tremendous effect on birth control pill use? I don't know, but it might have some effect. Well, thank you all for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And be sure to rate and review, review our show to help new listeners find us. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. Where we the... will be discussing a special three co-host episode where we're going to talk about diseases of the winter. The hosts aren't necessarily special, but uh, the topic is special. The topic is special. The get-together will be special. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.